0: Time.
1: This is the Scoop Duck, Scoop Duck Podcast.
0: Scoop Duck Podcast.
1: Every
2: game. You're going to go back to throw the ball. Sets up, left, the corner of the zone, it is intercepted! Intercepted! The,
0: of the ball. Every story. So we just continue to push and grind and go and take care of our guys. It's going to be built to last.
2: The Scoop Duck Podcast. Scoop Duck owner Justin Hopkins and Matt Bagley from one 580 The Game.
0: Back and excited to be back. We got a lot to break down. Scoop duck and hi-fi. Matt Bagley alongside my friend Justin Hopkins who is uh, zooming in from his house in Southern Oregon. We're gonna talk draft. We're gonna tell you what we think about where Panay and Thomas Graham and some of the other great names in green and yellow are gonna play professionally But let's start with the players who are still suited up collegiately and what we saw this weekend from the Oregon spring game. I think the quarterback question has been put to bed. I loved what I saw from Anthony Brown on Saturday. What did you like from Anthony Brown? Uh,
3: That he didn't throw any interceptions. Um, You
0: know,
3: there there was, uh, you know, I wasn't looking for perfect play. It's a spring game. Uh, you know, you're trying different things out uh, just, just to be effective, you know, just to be able to run the offense, just, you know, I didn't want him to throw, you know, a seven yard out and the receiver, you know, was doing a slant, and obviously they weren't on the same page. So it seemed like, I, I know they kept it vanilla. I know they kept it very base. I know there wasn't a lot for him to process, but again, uh, just, you know, get his confidence up, let him show, you know, why he's quarterback number one because Mario Cristobal has made it abundantly clear that he is the starting quarterback, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the the real battles behind him. And, you know, that was it. Like I said, I, I think the thing that gives me the most optimism about it is that Anthony Brown is a guy that uh, really is an effective runner as quarterback. And obviously when you're playing the spring game, it somewhat neutralizes, uh, you know, that area for him so uh, i think despite him not really being able to run he was able to drop back and pass able to drop back and evade you know rushers a little bit move around the pocket and and make some completions um didn't need to see him hit a ton of home runs but he did have a couple big you know big bigger completions um i thought it was a solid performance i'm not handing him a heisman or anything of that caliber but right uh with what we saw Uh, from the offensive group, how much talent they have at running back, how much talent they have at receiver, how much talent they have at tight end, I'm not sure that they need a Heisman quarterback to get it done this year.
0: Right. Hey, I love the line there. He's not a Heisman winner, not going to win the Heisman. I don't think Oregon needs him to, and, and I think what we saw Saturday is Oregon needs a quarterback for this season. I love what I saw from from Ashford. I loved his footwork, his mobility. I loved the cannon that I saw from Jay Butterfield. And I I think Ty Thompson can combine the best of both those worlds, but none of those guys have the experience that Anthony Brown has. If you're going to play Ohio State, And an improved slate across the Pac-12. I think Cal gets better this year. Arizona State returns just about everybody that they start. Uh, You can say the same for USC. You you can say the same for Oregon State. It's going to be a tougher conference this year. I think having that person that has the arm, the mobility, and the experience that Anthony Brown has is perfect for the Ducks.
3: Yeah, I certainly didn't feel that uh, I'm not here to, you know, uh, criticize Tyler Shuck uh, any great degree, but I, I certainly don't feel like defenses feared him in all three phases of being, you know, obviously being able to pass the ball downfield, you know, being able to run the football effectively, being a run threat, you know, being able to evade the pocket, make the throws um, and being a commander of the offense. And you know, those, those are the kind of the three facets, Uh, of being a quarterback, depending on the offense you're in. And, um, you know, I I just don't think teams had to – the hard part is I don't think teams really had to respect his arm, uh, you know, downfield for the most part. They didn't really have to respect the run. I think you bring a guy like Anthony Brown in, and he's going to be experienced enough, good enough, to make you respect those areas. He doesn't – again, he doesn't need to win football games on his own. He simply just needs to do enough – to not turn the ball over, help keep the chains moving and get the ball out to the playmakers. And, and uh, you know, that's the thing. I, I think we saw that there's an abundance of playmakers for Oregon on offense this year at receiver, at tight end and running backs are gonna be good. Um, they just need, you know, it reminds me very much of Darren Thomas in the Chip Kelly days. And I'm not saying Mario Cristobal is Chip Kelly, but Joe Moorhead is, is, is at least close Somewhat to Chip Kelly and what he likes to do offensively. Darren Thomas isn't going to wow you in any one area of the game, but he could. He was an effective game manager. You know, helped the Ducks. Uh, you know, play for a national championship. He was a great player. I think that that's what Anthony Brown can be for this team if these weapons can be uh, good enough. And given the fact that I think Joe Moorhead will put him uh, in places to succeed.
0: Joe Moorhead is Chip Kelly. I I, I don't know if that's a perfect comp. But I like that comp.
3: Well, I mean, let, you know, let's face it, a Mario Pistol offense that we've seen so far, you know, under Arroyo has been heavily run-based. It has not resembled what Chip Kelly has done. I believe and, and last year, I understand last year, Joe Moorhead was the offensive coordinator, but that wasn't fair. They didn't they weren't able to put anything in the in the spring. They pretty much just slammed together something in the fall in that short fall camp when it said, Hey everybody, show up next week, we're gonna play football. Uh, You know, we didn't get a true representation of a Joe Moorhead offense. I think we will see much more of that this year. I think it will be much more similar to what Oregon fans are used to, a la a Chip Kelly offense.
0: Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with you there. And I think this is a testament to what Chip built at Oregon. Part of the reason why you see similarity is the influence that Chip had on the entirety of college football. Like, of course, Moorhead is going to run Chip's stuff because Chip's stuff still works.
3: Oh, absolutely. And 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 that offense works. You know what I mean? It, it, there's, there's a reason more and more teams in college football are, are becoming more spread-based. It doesn't mean everybody's scrapping everything they're doing. But, it, I mean, heck, let's just face it. Even Alabama... You're watching, you know, Nick oh, Stephen, yeah? who was a, who was, you know, run first, run, run second, run third, and you know, all of a sudden Alabama's really become such a, a more dynamic team because they've opened up the playbook. It is much more similar to what Chip Kelly has done in the past with the fast pace, no huddle spread. I mean, sure, it's not Chip Kelly's offense, but you see, you know, the evolution of their offense and it much more resembles that than it did ten years ago.
0: So, earlier you talked about the dynamic playmakers, the weapons that Oregon has at running back, at wide receiver, like we saw Troy Franklin with those nice hauls on Saturday, and he's just the tip of the iceberg, true freshman there in the wideout room. I think about the weapons at tight end. Patrick Herbert really filled out this year. I think he's going to compete for playing time. Now on the other side of the ball, how does the uh, talent on offense – compare to the talent on defense? Well, defensively.
3: defensively, um, you know, it was, so you and I recording this, you know, I've, I've tried to do because practices were closed this year, we had two opportunities to view Oregon football, both in scrimmage situations. And for me, I, I've tried to kind of encapsulate everything from the two, rather than just what we saw in spring ball or the spring game, excuse me, And the reason for that is in the spring game, there were a number of notable players that weren't playing. Mikel Wright, one of them, D.J. James, another one, Jamal Hill. That changes the entire complexity of the secondary. That's half of your starting lineup, uh, you know, for the most part, uh, not out there. So, you know, both all three of those guys played in the first scrimmage. And I thought in the first scrimmage two weeks ago, the secondary looked good. Did it? Did they look great? Did they look elite? No, but they looked good. And that was with Jordan Happel being the, the the third starting safety. Verone McKinley, Jamal Hill, Jordan Happel. Again, Jordan Happel started on, on Saturday, and as did Verone McKinley, uh, but they were without Jamal Hill. So, you know, it's been a lot of plug-and-play. Um, you know, Dante Manning was out there on Saturday. Uh, we saw a lot of Triquas Bridges out there on Saturday. We saw a lot of Brian Addison out there on Saturday uh, at corner, so it was mix and match. Um I personally think the defense can be good. I think it be, can be good enough to complement the offense. I don't think they're anywhere near elite. They have a couple of elite linebackers for sure. You know, uh, Noah Sewell is obviously one of them. I think just flow could get there. I'm not ready to anoint him uh, that way just yet. But ISM is is about as good as it gets as an experienced linebacker for Oregon. And then, of course, in front, you've got. You know, Thibodeau, which is, I mean, we, we you know what the commodity is there. I don't have to talk about it. Uh, you've got a guy like Brandon Dorless, who's really flashed some, some great uh, flashes towards the end of last season. For me, it's the interior of the defensive line. It's, is Popo Amave the guy? Is he big enough? Is he strong enough? You know, who can play next to him? Is it Christian Williams? Is he ready? Is he big enough? Strong enough? Keonware Hudson. You know, I'd love to see one more big body in there. I'd love to see somebody in that 325 range. 335 range, possibly, if they could handle that kind of weight. Um, you know, Jason Jones is a guy that does uh, break that weight barrier, but I just don't think he's technically ready yet. So there's bodies there. I just think we're going to need to see a little bit more improvement from the interior of the defensive line. Not a lot, just a little bit. And I think Oregon's really got to make sure that their starting group of of, of the secondary, the corners and safeties are healthy and playing and I'm really curious to see who ends up being that third safety in the group. You know Varone McKinley's gonna be out there, you know Jamal Hill's gonna be out there. Um, you know, will it be Jordan Happel, Will Demon David pass him up, you know, Steve Stevens, Jared Greenfield, somebody, Bennett Williams. Um, there's a lot of options. It just needs to be somebody dependable in my opinion.
0: I think your comment about the secondary and and the guys that played in the open scrimmage that fans saw two weeks ago versus the guys that played Saturday in the spring game is really savvy yeah. because when I watched the spring game, I put this in my notes, I was going to talk about this on my radio show today, I was concerned about some of the lapses in coverage of, yeah. of guys like Troy Franklin getting over the top of the defense um, and, and it sounds like that's not a concern for you.
3: Well, I mean, it's always a concern, no question. But it wasn't a true representation of that secondary. No, Mikel Wright, no DJ James. Those are your starting two corners. I don't, I don't care what happens between now and, and fall camp. I feel confident saying those are your two starting corners. They weren't out there, and and that's okay. I'm not, I'm not concerned about them. I, everybody needs to remember this is a spring game. There's no reason to put a Mikel Wright out there. There's no reason to play a Cave on Thibodeau a ton of reps or Noah Sewell. <laughs> those, you, would just wanna, right. you just want to you just want to protect those assets. That's all you're looking to do there. Get them a couple reps, let them hit somebody a little bit, and then get them off the field. So I'm not concerned, but I I am concerned about what you said to a point that hey, yeah, we can't you know you can't be letting guys get through the secondary uh, into that back level easily, and they did do that a little bit on Saturday. But there is something else to note there. The offense was thoroughly vanilla and running a base offense. Probably only ran three or four plays five plays, uh, in the whole game. Uh, and that, and one of them was obviously the throwback screen to Kingsley Sumataya. Uh, but the defense was also vanilla as well. You know, just basically sat in their base defense the entire time they didn't mix anything up. They didn't, they didn't, you know, do any different twister stunts up front. They didn't move guys around. They didn't do pre-snap movements. You know what I mean? They didn't do any of that stuff that you'll see this fall. So ultimately if you're just, let's just say you're being vanilla on both sides of the ball, Really, that tends to favor the offense a little bit. And I think that showed on Saturday, not to mention the defense was missing some key guys. Uh, again, three in, three guys out of that starting secondary uh, were not there. So, yeah, that does explain why they were able to get over the top a little bit. I mean, let's be real. If Troy Franklin's not starting for Oregon, he's one hell of a backup. I mean, that guy <laughs> is, I mean, right. and, and, that, and that's a testament to the depth of receiver at Oregon. You know, you've got some experienced guys there that he has to beat out. But holy smokes can that kid play football, and it's abundantly clear in the two open scrimmages we are able to see that that, that kid's future is incredibly bright.
0: Yeah. yeah, it's easy to overhype freshmen, especially when they haven't played games against opposing teams yet, but I think about what happened in the NFL this weekend. Bama sends its fourth first-round wideout to the NFL in the past two years, <laughs> and they've got a fifth on the way next year in a, th- a three-year span. And I saw Troy Franklin look like a guy that could hang with those dudes. I saw, f- for the first time in the Mario Cristobal era, a kid that looks like a first-round wideout.
3: Yeah, no, I, then that's fair. I, I, I mean, I, I, I hate to get hyperbolic, hyperbolic and I hate to set unrealistic expectations, but there's absolutely nothing that I saw in two practices from Troy Franklin that didn't say, hey, look, this, you know, this guy's a dude. I mean, he's going to be a dude, maybe not this year. Maybe he's not winning the Heisman this year, obviously. But I mean, I, his time's coming and I, and I think we're going to have, you know, two, three, uh, really good years out of Troy Frankman at Oregon and Dante Thornton has shown some really th- good things as well um but I I, I think it's I, I think it's pretty clear that there's a little bit of, of a difference in those two and Troy Franklin looks like a legit legit guy
0: yeah yeah lots of like there uh lots of like with the Ducks overall offense with some pieces defense with some pieces and we're going to talk about those pieces in a way that is is um reminiscent to the regular season for a lot of fans of the pod we've got qb11 from the scoop duck boards and hidliday from addicted to quack we're going to treat this just like a game week the ducks played what do they think about it and where do the ducks go next scoop duck and (laughs) hi-fi Okay, back here on Scoop Duck and Hi Fi, Matt Bagley alongside Justin Hopkins. And like I just said, we've got two of my favorite guests on the pod right now, treating this just like a game week. QB11, who's a moderator at Scoop Duck and, and writes a lot of great insights about scouting and viewing talent, evaluating players on this Oregon roster, especially on the offense. And Hidliday from Addicted to Quack, whose film breakdowns have become somewhat legendary amongst Duck fans online. These two guys are with us right now, and I can't wait to pick your guys' brains. Duck spring game, I feel like the offense was better than the defense. Justin pointed out that's not really a concern right now because a lot of great guys didn't play. Uh, When you think about what you saw Saturday, what are some of the takeaways that you're going to hold on to over the soft season?
1: Well, I think Justin is right that the, uh, the defense being out, you know, so many of their defensive backs made sort of assessing what was going on. You know, at at one point, I think during the second drive, uh, three of the five DBs that they had in were walk-ons and, you know, they were going up against four and five star wide receivers. It's not quite a fair fight. Um, But I was watching, uh, you know, up front, the the offensive line versus the defensive line. And, uh, you know, for... I really liked what I saw, you know, I, ever since I did my deep dive into Tim DeRuiter's, uh defensive structures and sort of noted like, Hmm, Oregon's uh, defensive front personnel doesn't quite match up with he wants to do. And sort of, you know, wondering what kind of defense Oregon's going to field um, in, in 2021. A- and I had been predicting that, you know, rather than the three down, uh, you know, maybe double legal fronts that he'd been using in his past, that maybe you'd see a transition year with a lot more two and four down fronts. And that's exactly what we saw, you know, a lot Of two two down, um, with a couple stand up ends, um, or olbs kind of semantic, whether you want not you want to call it a 245 or a 425, but you know, ultimately an even surface, two down linemen, two you know, uh, guys rushing off the edge, two inside linebackers, four to def- five defensive backs. Um, that was sort of the structure that I was expecting to see. Uh, and that was really the only big question that I had was you know, how he was going to d- adapt to uh, to the defensive personnel, and, and uh, I, I thought it played out pretty well. Hell, it was decided by a single point. It was pretty exciting.
2: Yeah, I would agree with with Hiflade. We kind of made some speculative. I I wrote an article back in probably January or February whenever DeRuder was hired about kind of how I figured he would morph his defense to fit the personnel. And it kind of matches up. I mean, the, the biggest concern that I have, at least from a front seven standpoint, is who are those interior two gapping like zero one techniques that can that can really just eat blocks in the middle there's not a lot of those guys uh it's something that they've addressed over the years is trying to get longer on the defensive front and uh fit, fit in the avalos scheme where there really wasn't a whole lot of a need for those types of bodies but tra- as we transition over to what i think derudo derudo would like to do long term i think uh, improving the depth there is going to be a, a big thing. Uh, guys like Jason Jones are, are great, but they're more built to be in a wider alignment where they don't have to, to sit and anchor on double teams of two short, stubby interior offensive linemen. So outside of Popo, I really wanted to see the development of guys like Keon Ware-Hudson, Suave Apoti, all those guys that are going to be asked to sit in there and take those double teams. And I'll be interested to see what, what they showed in the spring versus what we see week two at Ohio State um, how the alignments and scheme changes to fit that personnel even further. So just to follow up, because both of you, I, I think, uh, possibly HIF,
3: maybe not so much as, as QB, but when you're talking about what you saw in the alignments, one of my biggest concerns was who's going to be those interior defense alignment and does Oregon have them? I, I think Popo Amave's probably going to be fine and fit in well there. You know, kind of looking for a second, is that something that you guys would agree with? You're kind of looking at, you know,
2: between spring and fall. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the thing is, is that we know what Popo can do. Like if you ignore 2020 where he wasn't really available and you just evaluated the film from the back half of the 2019 season, I think Kiff would probably agree with me that he was playing at a higher level than Scott was just as a, just a pure nose tackle. Um, and so I feel really good about him now, obviously how, how trusting is it or how much can we trust that he's going to stay healthy? Um, and, but this group is made for nickel dime pass rush situations. I mean, there's so much length. There's a lot of Twitch. I mean, even like uh, Christian Williams, like fantastic getting off the ball, but his, he doesn't have a body type and Brandon Dorlis isn't an ideal body type to hang in there from a, again, in that zero and one and just just stack blocks. And so Keon where Hudson needs to continue to improve. He's solid there right now. Um, I think hopefully with a full remainder of the off season, and fall camp, he can, he can take that next step, but we really need to have more than just those two. We need to get a a third guy in there, whether that's Jason Jones or uh, one of the other young guys, we just need to find that body.
1: Yeah, I, I was sort of, you know, uh, we saw what I was expecting to see in the first uh, uh, first and third drives, which were the ones-on-ones on ones drives, uh, where it was Amavi and Weir Hudson. Um, and then we saw sort of what I was expecting to see in the second and fourth drives, which were like the twos-on-twos, twos, which were uh, Dorliss and Christian Williams as the interior guys, and uh, Pody and, and Jason Jones. We also saw a little later in the game uh, Afiasse. Um, And, you know, that's sort of what I was expecting the pecking order to be. Um, But QB is right. Like, these... they need to spend a little more time at the training table uh, and and there just needs to be more of them. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to be interested. It obviously won't be relevant for the 2021 season, but I'm going to be paying attention in the 2022 class and and beyond like what kind of bodies uh, they're going to try to recruit. Um, And what, you know, this might be a situation that he's happy with and tries to roll with going forward and is sort of changing his philosophy because there just aren't a whole lot of 300 pounders on the West coast. And it, you know, might be more appropriate to roll with a 4-2 or 2-4 two or, two um, or he might try to do it uh, you know uh, Cal's great nose guard uh, that they were playing uh, uh, through 2018 they lost him afterwards and that's sort of why their defense fell apart uh, was Chris Palmer he was from Georgia you know going to school in Berkeley you know who knows Oregon recruits nationally it might be they you know get a couple of big southern guys and and really go for it uh, I will be watching uh, with interest.
0: Hith, you mentioned flexibility for Tim DeRuiter. Uh, how flexible do you think he is? Um, he, this will be
1: uh, an interesting test. He had to, he had to change up a lot of things at Cal because Cal did not, you know, had less ideal personnel than even at Fresno State. You know, he was an inheriting situation that Sunny Dykes left him right. Um, where defense was, you know, an afterthought is being generous. Uh, and, um, it, and when he walks in a situation in Oregon, it is, again, a situation where, you know, OK, this is not exactly the personnel that he wants. On the other hand, they're a lot, hell of a lot more talented. And even though, you know, the guys he's going to try to to get to play for I uh, are not ideal for it, they're still pretty damn good. You know, like Brendan Dorlos is an incredible uh, defensive lineman. Uh, is his, you know, body type ideal for it? No. Uh, do I still think that he's going to kick a lot of ass this year, uh, despite that fact? Yes, because I think he's one of the best defensive linemen back to. Well, and sort of, you know, period, full stop.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. Uh, I think, I think we might disagree a little bit though in, in the fact that I don't think that the four eye is the body type that we're struggling to recruit. And I do think that that's the hardest one to recruit getting a bunch of six foot, six, one, 300 pound guys is easy. If you just want a guy that's just going to line up over the center, he's not going to be a, a, a pass rusher, but he's just going to eat that block and he's going to be hard to move. Just gonna be a little fire hydrant. You can find those guys. Yeah, Washington's quite got five a, of them. Yeah, I was gonna say that's <laughs> you have if you compare Oregon and Washington defensive line, you have two different problems. Oregon has done a great job transitioning and getting a lot more explosive and lengthy, and the body types aren't lean. Like it's not like we have a bunch of Jalen Jelks that we're gonna to ask to beef up and play five techniques. Guys like Keanu Williams, Ma- Masailafisi, Jason Jones, those guys are all those guys are all they have the ideal length they have the frame potential to be i mean most of them already are 200 to 310 pounds but it's it's that guy that's going to line up over the center which makes it so that you kind of have to play this kind of hybrid even front which probably fits the personnel better anyways because it puts brandon doorless in a position to play a shade over a guard instead of having to stack a tackle who's going to be a lot longer because from a positional standpoint the thing that doorless does best is play a three technique and so what you're doing is you just need to find the guy that can can eat those blocks in the middle to allow him and Funa who probably is best up up on the line of scrimmage um, as tight to the box as possible play their ideal skill set so I think I think it's going to be interesting but I think he's going to do a good job morphing uh, what he would like to do to the talent and then beyond that the young talent kind of fits what he wants to do long term with the exception of there's not a lot of those nose tackle bodies. So a guy like Sir Mel's in 2022 class, I think that's where they project him. But again, he's also long enough to bump outside if he's athletic enough. So I think they've done a good job of addressing the defensive line. It's just that there's a lot of youth and inexperience still
1: the other thing you mentioned Funa and and Kayvon Thibodeau as well the other thing sort of put to bed is the notion that like oh Thibodeau's uh, switched over an OLB that means this guy's like a, a coverage guy it's like no you know maybe he's going to do that once in a blue moon just to mess with the offense I mean that's what he was doing with Vaughn Miller um, at, at Texas A&M 2010 um, but like no it's a it's an even surface and both you know he and Funa uh, were the you know were the starters with the ones uh, in that game but then you also saw you know jake shipley was playing on on the end like uh you the uh you know you saw um uh during past situations you saw adrian jackson you know playing up on the end those guys are dropping into coverage i trevin Maya actually i thought had a pretty good game um, yeah. uh Jaden avarrett uh as well like um yeah you know exactly as you would expect like tight into the box and and they're they're you know, they're coming at the quarterback that's their job
2: and something to like keep in mind, and I've said this a couple of times in regards to like Thibodeau's position changes, it's a lot smaller of a change than people recognize. Cause most of the time, I'd say probably 70% of the time, his utilization last year and the year before is gonna be exactly the same. He's gonna line up in a seven technique. But the difference is, and it'll be interesting to see with Ken Ken Wilson's influence, is with him sliding to more of an outside linebacker position instead of that defensive end that he played in in the in the Avalos front. Instead of stemming inside to really have to play that four eye and stack a tackle, playing an outside linebacker position, it's more likely that he will drop out of the box and play in coverage than have to drop even deeper into the box and stack in the run game. Which, I mean, it, you ask anybody who knows anything about about what how Kavon projects to the NFL, that's not his skill set. He's not he's not a two hundred and seventy five pound guy who could slide in there and hang. That's not his strength. So just take him take them away from that situation entirely and and, and plug in bodies that fit that role
1: and the reason that he is going to roll outside is because all of his help in in Daruder's structure comes from the inside right like not only does he have you know bigger you know linemen doing that but the, like all the action as anybody who watched Cal and looked at their tackle numbers knows you know comes from the inside linebackers and that was the other thing that was really encouraging about watching the spring game was I thought the inside linebackers looked great uh, like, you know not only in comparison to 2020 when there were some clearly you know some tackling problems and maybe some focus issues as well but like I mean these are just far more talented inside linebackers that Oregon has had probably ever really. Uh you know, I, I thought that Slay Matuotillo was back to form. It was great to see, you know, Sewell's all over the field. It was great to see uh Justin Flo, you know, seemed like he's uh, on the mend. Uh, we saw a little bit of um Keith Brown It uh, was nice. Uh Mathis and Leduc, who's sort of, you know, the forgotten inside linebackers are getting reps with the twos. I thought they looked great. Um, you know, a lot of good options uh there, the inside linebackers and and you know, a couple of those guys are going to set records in terms of tackling. In the nature of the system, uh, for the reasons that QB was elucidating,
2: yeah, like it's not, it's not like some try, like I don't mean, I don't want to talk disrespectfully about the linebackers that he's had a cow, but the the class of athlete that he's going from with the guys that like Weaver, who who were very productive, to guys like Sewell and Flow, it's it's a completely different animal. And I would be honestly, after after seeing Flow, I would be very surprised if by the time it matters this season, we get into the thick of. In thick of conference play, he's going to be probably starting with with Sewell because we just we haven't had those kind of guys around, and really you're only going to have them together for two years maximum. Um,
3: kind of putting, I suppose, the finishing touches on on defense, if you will. Uh, you guys did a great job breaking down the front the front seven, ultimately the uh, defensive line linebackers, uh, corners and safeties. I don't know about you guys, I was able to obviously watch the spring game. Uh, on the television and then i was able to attend the open scrimmage a couple weeks ago i don't know if, if either of you did both but you know for me uh they pretty much had most of the starting secondary that first week they didn't in the spring game i thought it was a noticeable difference based on what you've seen concerns area of concerns i mean what did you guys kind of see from that group i know there were some big plays by the offensive receivers but just kind of where are things at for you with the secondary let's start with you qb
2: Yeah, uh, my biggest concern just overall in the defense is the depth at corner, um, which kind of showed itself a little bit in the spring game. There's just not a lot of scholarship bodies there this spring. That improves a little bit in the fall when Barkins and uh, Dickerson show up. But right now, the problem that we have is especially I feel really good about the top two guys. James and Wright are top of the line stars in the conference. Those guys are both players. I'm not worried about them. Um, we didn't get to see Bridges. There's been great reports that he's improved a lot. I'll believe it when I get to see it with my own eyes. And then we got to see the last two scholarship defensive backs at corner, both Manning and Davies. And the, physically, their talent is there, and they look really, really good. But it's they're going up against the ones at receiver, and they're both basically in their first spring. Well, they are both in their first spring. So um, and, and they've had very limited reps. They look good. I think Davies reminds me quite a bit of how Graham looked his first spring at Oregon. Um, and Manning's athletic ability is just off the charts. It's really easy to project him to be a really good player at some point. But what is that depth going to look like when the fall comes? If we were to suffer it, God forbid, suffer an injury to one of those top two, um, or even beyond that deeper into the depth chart, we're going to we're gonna need those young guys to step up and step up fast. Because as we saw, we had, I mean, it was two walk on corners with the twos. So bodies are, are it's going to be very key for Oregon to stay healthy at corner.
1: Yeah, I mean, the four guys who who you project to be the one and two deep in, in in Wright, James, Davies, and Manning, like, look, those guys would be starters at any other Pac-12 school. You know, uh, the problem is you need two of them. You really need four of them for rotational purposes. And we saw what was there behind, you know, those top four. It was walk-ons. Um, uh, you know, Dondrell Books, uh, you know, God bless him, Marco Vitakovich, um, Luke, Lucas Nolan, a local boy. Like, yeah, you know, w- what are you going to do the, the their walk-on is going up against four and five stars. Um, so uh, QB's right. Like they get a little more help in, uh, in the fall and I'm not sure where bridges was. Uh, um, they, they got Braylon Addison, uh, you know, uh, who I thought, you know, played a pretty cool game. Um, and then uh, the other thing about the defensive backs is that the, uh, I was a little happier with the safety situation than I thought it would be. Um, I've sort of been down on Verone McKinley for a couple of years. I, I thought he looked better in the spring game than I was expecting him to. Um, I really liked that. uh um Bennett Williams uh was uh, starting the game with the ones instead of uh Happel uh, uh Justin I think you had in one of your write-ups that Happel was playing with the ones on, and I, I don't think that's correct although I don't blame you for the confusion the the um There wasn't a whole lot of like clear demarcations of when they were putting the ones and the twos in, Um, but uh, and Steve Stevens, who we've sort of been waiting on for him to live up to his you know four star. I think he had some uh, unavailability problems in twenty twenty, which should have been his coming out party. Um, And then a little bit of uh, JJ Greenfield with the twos, who I thought looked pretty good, and uh, David David and 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 Bassa got in late um, as well. I think that's a lot more um, safety, depth, and talent, and correct decisions um, in uh, in terms of personnel than. Uh, Oregon had in 2020. and so I'm, you know I'm looking forward to shoring that unit up.
3: Um, that was a great segment on the defense and a, and a lot to unpack there. Hopefully people listen to that twice. Uh, I know I will, but uh, <laughs> offensively, uh, you know let's flip it over. you know Anthony Brown's a clear quarterback one. I thought he looked sharp and again, I, as I said to, to Matt in our, our preview here, I'm not ready to hand him a Heisman, but I think he was good enough to win with the talent around him. Uh, what did you guys kind of see out of Anthony Brown and, and who did you like after Brown, uh, you know, from the spring game? Let's, uh, let's have you kick it off. With it.
1: Um, well, Anthony Brown was the guy that I've been watching for, you know, the past four years, right? Like he, he was a starter for three years, at Boston college I wrote a whole article about him. Um, you know, that I think the guy's got all the physical tools to be successful as a quarterback, you know, when you hit the deep, throws he reads the field pretty well you know he's just an experienced veteran uh and um and of course it you know it just makes sense for him to be the starter right because he's this is his last year playing football doesn't disrupt anything if you know if you name him the starter in terms of how the race for qb2 goes i kind of you know, at this point, I'm not willing to say uh, who's who's ahead. It's not, it's kind of unimportant. There's it's you know, they've got an entire fall camp and however many practices uh, during the year before it's relevant, if at all, you know, entirely possible that Anthony Brown just, you know, plays every single snap and it's a totally moot point. Um, I think more relevant is the fact that it was very clear that Oregon has four quarterbacks who have the entire playbook at their disposal, right? Like there's no physical limitations for any of the quarterbacks in their room, right? Uh, and I can tell you from watching, you know, from doing all the research that I do on every other team, watching all their spring games, so all the conversations that we've had with other uh, publishers uh, for my articles at Addicted to Quack, like that's not true of any other room in the Pac-12, right? Like uh, most other places in the Pac-12, their QB1 goes down, like that's it, their season's over. You know, Jaden Daniels uh, at Arizona State uh, is unavailable for whatever reason. Arizona State is done playing football. Same with Chase Garber's a cow, same with uh, probably Charlie Brewer at Utah, same with Dorian Thompson Robinson, UCLA, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or at the very least, even if they have like a, uh, an okay quarterback too, that, that like they have to design a different playbook for him because that guy can't push the ball more than 10 yards downfield or, you know, or something like that. Not the case at Oregon, right? Like there is a 0% chance that Oregon finishes the 2021 season having to play a quarterback. where like, well, I got to design a different game plan for this guy. Like, you know, uh, it kind of doesn't matter really uh, who they eh, That's being a little glib, but like having that much depth, the four-star talent uh, where you don't have to worry about having to write a second playbook is it's a good thing to have.
2: Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I think uh, it's a really small sample to anoint somebody on. I wasn't able to go to that open practice a couple weeks ago. So uh, even then I probably wouldn't feel comfortable with it. What I will say is that, uh, I think that Brown has a really high floor, and I think that reasonable expectations should be set. But when you consider that he's going to have the best supporting cast of an Oregon quarterback since Vernon Adams was at Oregon, it 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 should give you some hope that this offense should just achieve. Like if they if they if they hit their baseline on a week to week basis, you should be scoring thirty five points. So it's just a matter of of. of oh, I apologize. In sec.
1: I, I'll put it this way: I don't think the quarterback is going to be the bottleneck for Oregon's offense if they have one at all. Uh, I I very much doubt that uh, issues with the quarterback are are going to be the thing that's holding Oregon back. If anything does, I, I would expect that would be something more like you know what we saw at the offensive line, uh, where I still think you you've got a work in progress recovering from the 2019 season. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm back,
2: guys. Uh, you- I I agree with that though. Basically, what I'm saying is that I think that whoever starts at quarterback in 2021. Um, or sorry, in 2022 will be more talented, and have a higher ceiling than Brown in 2021. But I think that the floor or the baseline with Brown is is a, is a nice upgrade to an offense that was extremely inconsistent, turned the ball over a lot in 2020.
3: Uh, and uh, I guess that's how I feel. The supporting cast around him, you know, should should give him plenty. And as long as he's just controlled and making the right decisions, not forcing the football, the offense should hum. Uh, Flip it over and uh, receiving tight end. I don't know about you, I continue to gush at what I saw because I'm just, I'm blown away that, that just I'm throwing it, I'm throwing it out, but just that Troy Franklin might be the fourth or fifth best receiver on this roster today. Not in the end, but today, Uh, you know, and the fact that they've got at least four capable tight ends. What did you guys see from that group specifically? Who did you like? Who stood out QB, Go ahead.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I agree. I don't think that Franklin's the fourth-best receiver. I think he's probably at worst second-best right as of today. Um, But when you just think back over the last couple of years, I mean, poor Justin Herbert's probably watching the spring game thinking, man, where was this a couple years ago? (laughs) Like, especially at tight end, I think is probably the most drastic difference. Receiver, too. I guess you could probably group those together. But there's just – there's so many Pac-12 quality starters there. And it's not just that there's Pac-12 quality starters. There's Pac-12 quality starters that are buried on the depth chart. And when you think back to the years where Ryan Bay or Hunting Camp were, no, no no disrespect to those guys, were the second option at tight end and had to go out and run routes. And right now we have two true freshmen that could both be starters if we needed them to be. So we're, we're in a much better spot than we've been historically at those positions. And I think it's going to be the new standard going forward. Um, And I think some good players, some really good players, are going to lose snaps this year. The guys with experience to young guys because you just can't keep them off the field.
1: The thing that I was uh, really encouraged by seeing was was the tight ends. Number one, like those – true freshmen look ready to play right now, uh, which that's nuts for tight ends. Uh, And number two is uh, uh, after not really seeing much of uh, Patrick Herbert at all, or Spencer Webb as, you know, a blocking tight end. uh, No, those guys were starting, you know, those were running with the ones and they had clearly bulked up um, and they were knocking people around, you know, they were, you know, your, your, your full service tight ends, you know, not just like run out and catch passes. Um, And, you know for joe moorhead it's been a minute since he's had you know really high quality uh uh tight ends like that um the he he you know mike kosecki at penn state was not a great blocking tight end he didn't really have him at, at mississippi state um and uh he didn't really have him you know at oregon in 2020 because nobody could stay healthy um and, you know, so I'm really interested to see what Moorhead does with that full of a room of full service tight ends where, you know, not, I don't want to be too cavalier about this, but even if Webb and Herbert get hurt, he can still field 12 personnel sets, uh, you know, with Mattavow and Ferguson and not miss a beat. Cause I mean,
2: good Lord, those guys are huge. And you're not compromising a skill set with those guys on the game either. That's the big thing is in the past, Oregon's had to go down the tight end depth chart. They were either compromising the ability to run around and catch passes and press the field vertically, or they were compromising the body type to actually go in and block. Like er, what Spencer Webb early in his career wasn't much of a blocker. Guys like Camp Moyer and Bay were pretty limited getting downfield. And so even if we had to go, God forbid, down the depth chart to the third, fourth, or fifth guy, there's there's still really high ceiling athletes there. Yeah,
3: quite a, uh, quite a turnaround in the last three years, at least in those two departments, uh, you know, from my view, and, and I do agree with the QB 11 uh, from the initial, you know, I, I was speaking in jest, Troy Franklin might be the second best receiver on, on the team right now, but, um, you know, I doubt he's going to break the start. Who knows? Maybe he will. But uh, lastly, I think I've held on to this uh, offensive line. I know we touched on it very briefly earlier, but, uh, you know, at least from my view, I see a group that's. That's good, not elite, maybe, maybe, maybe above average. I don't know, somewhere in there, but they definitely have a ceiling. Um, I think they'll be okay in the run game. That's going to be a matter of how they hold up in the pass game. You know, what did you guys see from from the guys that were put in there from the starting five? Understanding we didn't see Sala Amave out there. Uh, what are your thoughts on the offensive line? Uh, QB, why don't you go ahead this one?
2: Yeah, thanks. Um, I I think that the how good that group can be. Will be dictated by the steps that guys like Stephen Jones, T.J. Bass, and Salam labe take between now and when it's time to go in the fall. Because those those guys are the guys that aren't at their ceiling or aren't close to their ceiling, and the guys that can really improve and they're going to be the ones that dictate the overall ability of the of the of the offensive line. Guys like Forsythe are great; they're dependable, they're good players, but he's not going to get a whole lot better between now and August. Guys like George Moore, he's a sixth-year guy. I mean, he's improved. He seems to have improved a lot from last year actually watching him, but he's he's going to be scraping that ceiling because of just how long he's been in the program. But guys who haven't been available because of injuries are, are really in their first full or second full year in the program um, and are, are the younger guys are going to be the ones that kind of get to elevate the group or or make it kind of the same as last year where it was an inconsistent bunch.
1: Uh, yes, totally. Uh, the, and those are exactly the people that I would name in terms of who's at their ceiling and, and who still has room to improve. Um, the, the, I will be interested to see what happens when um, when Umuolulu gets back. Uh, I have been hoping that what that means is that Walk uh, is is put back with the twos um, because that's sort of where his physical development uh, has you know capped out at. Um, I was interested to see a couple of uh, guys that I wasn't expecting to. Uh, Dawson Darimello was uh, taking uh, uh, reps with the ones at right tackle, who are. Was not expecting to see, and I don't think he embarrassed himself. Uh, we saw Sue Mataya and uh, Marcus Harper, um, and Logan Sacapolo and Jonathan Dennis, uh, with the twos, as well as uh, Jackson Powers Johnson, uh, f- formerly Light, um, and uh, it and I think it's a deep group that, you know, that's the other thing is even if the ones are not the, you know, that 2019 elite uh, offensive line level, like I think that unlike 2020, when they were clearly absolutely petrified of a offensive line injury, and that's where they were cross-training everybody at multiple positions. And they were, you know, they probably, you know, they played a six man rotation. They probably only had six guys who were ready to play. They, they, it, it seems clear to me from, from the yes, limited data that we have from the two, you know, uh uh, practices that we've been able to see uh that like nah the group's probably going to run closer to eight or nine deep um this year which is you know gives you a little more flexibility to experiment and uh and and really find who your best five are
3: uh great stuff guys love love uh love the way you guys have broken down the ducks it's excellent i know fans are going to eat this up uh before we send you out maybe last one um I guess we'll just talk about that team up to the North that, that wears the purple and gold. Uh, I, I believe the two of you at least watched some of their spring game. I'm not looking for you to break it down in the detail that you have with the ducks, but uh, I, I guess just from, from an eyeball test and a, and a quick overview, what did you guys see and how does it compare to Oregon? Um, why don't you start it off, please?
1: Um, well, the thing that I was looking for was, you uh The thing that I was looking for most for Washington was how their offensive line was going to go because, you know, given the choices that they have made at what they refer to as an offense up there, uh, you know, the offensive line is going to determine their success at it. They were basically playing the same guys that they were playing last year. Um, The the greatest article that I've never published was my Washington preview for 2020. (laughs) Like, oh boy, I was, you know, I I went pretty deep (laughs) on those guys. Um, It's been curious to me because they a uh their twos at the offensive line are better than their ones. They're certainly higher ceiling guys. They probably should have, if they were a bolder team in 2020, would have been playing those guys uh, and planning for the future. And not only did they not do that, from the spring game, it appears that they're going to stay the course on that one and play guys who I think are just way lower ceiling dudes uh, from left to right. It was Kirkland, Ali, Wattenberg, Bainavalu, and then um, because Kern was out, they had melee playing right tackle. I think those guys have a lower ceiling than the dudes that they were playing with their twos, which were uh, Fountain New Luciano, Biolo, and Rosengarten. Um, uh, Miles Morale was out. They probably would have had him playing center if he were available. Anyway, the, uh, the th- and then sort of across the board, that same philosophy that I had been noting in Chris Peterson's uh, teams, and now it appears, you know, Jimmy Lakes as well, where like the, seniority uber alles right like the guy who's been around for a while no matter what his ceiling in he's the guy who gets the start uh and the more talented dudes they recruited like are going to warm the bench like that's what i was seeing throughout the spring game and i mean the difference in talent between the dudes that they have selected to be their ones uh and you know the team to their south is remarkable QB. Yeah. Anything to, to I, add? Yeah. I
2: would break it down even more simply than that. Like I agree with, with everything that Hippleday said, but I, I I don't think that you can glean a lot from the spring in regards to scheme and um, really, I mean, spring games specifically, everything's so watered down and guys are running about ninety percent. Everyone's just trying to make it out of the spring uninjured. That I'm I'm just looking at uh, the kind of the stuff I always look at, it's like what's what's the what's the average athlete on the team look like stacked up across the board. And what does it look like in relative to the other teams in the conference, the main competition, the contenders for a conference championship. And it's just, there's just completely different athletic profiles. I mean, we were talking about Oregon doesn't really have a ton of the nose tackle guys. That's all they had. They have nose tackles spread along the off on the defensive line playing different techniques because there's just, there's no length or explosiveness. And when you compare athletes at linebacker, you just go up up and down. The only thing I'll say is that the Washington defensive backfield is good and as deep as it ever is, but just the overall athleticism across the board is in the size the size relative to the athleticism it's just a completely different type of type of unit so um I, i'm not going to take too much i mean it seems like they're doing the same stuff offensively as they did last year which is it puts them at a disadvantage it's a low ceiling type of type of system you're you're if you want to play ball control and defense 2002 2001 was a long time ago um, You have to be able to generate explosive plays offensively to win football games at a high level now.
3: So I don't know about you, Matt, but all I heard was the ducks are going to kick the crap out of the Huskies 47 to six. <laughs> is that what you heard, Matt? <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I think uh, the greatest coach in the history of the PAC 12, Jimmy Lake really is going to have his work cut out for him next fall. Uh, Man, I'll it was- it was- like,
1: I think there is a version of the Washington football team, which does pose an immediate threat to Oregon. In fact, there's like and is actually a pretty damn good team. Could could go to the playoffs. I don't think those are the that's the team that's gonna show up on the field. Um I, I think culturally they're making the wrong choices in order to do that.
2: Yeah, which is interesting so, uh, because if you look at them on a long term scale, like they they really did recruit well under Peterson. Like the last couple of years at Peterson they brought in good talent. But the way they've deployed that talent and they've staggered it out, some of it's left, some of it hasn't played, and they've stuck with their guys, their OKGs that they can trust. And it's limited the ceiling of the team in the short term, but it's also staggered their classes in such a way where if they don't maintain that type of recruiting, that roster will fall off a cliff because they just there's going to have a bunch of guys that haven't played or they're going to have a bunch of guys that just aren't the same athletic profile that they might've been able to recruit three or four years ago.
1: Well, and like half of their skill talent hit the, hit the transfer portal probably for cultural reasons, you know, for for exactly the reasons you're saying QB, like, yeah, like this, this team would worry me a lot more if I thought it were better coached.
2: Yeah. Like guys like Jalen McMillan and Romo Jones, those guys can play on the outside. They're good receivers. I think that their running backs are all kind of the same guy. None of them are particularly explosive on their own, um, which is going to – I mean, again, it fits in. They're, they're hard-nosed. They're, they run they run the ball hard, but they're, they're six- to seven-yard in-a-pile-of-dust kind of guys, whereas, I mean, if McGrew gets out there and skirts on the edge, he can go on a straight line. But they're not super dynamic ball carriers. But I don't see them offensively opening things up enough to really take advantage of the talent – and skill sets of those outside receivers, especially if they decide to roll with a guy like Dylan Morris, who struggles to push the ball down the field versus a younger guy with some more arm talent, like Heward.
1: Push pushes the right word with him.
2: Uh, yeah. it's a sound, <laughs> well, but, I mean, there's a lot of hang time on anything outside the numbers. Well,
3: I, I certainly hope uh Grinnells and Finners don't hear this because they'll be crying purple tears from you guys, but uh, we, we, uh, we do appreciate your time and I, and I hate to cut it off, but if we're going to have a ton of off seasons to to keep going over some of this and maybe get further into the evaluations. Uh, Hitler Day, we definitely appreciate you. QB11, we appreciate you as always. And uh, can't wait to get you guys back on again here.
1: Hey, if I can plug something real quick, I, uh, I'm publishing my, my weekly, uh, deep dive series and every PAC 12 team. I published the first one on Cal, uh, on Monday morning. And, uh, we've got every one of them lined up to get you through the spring and beginning of summer. Um, uh, really great podcast interviews. And, and, uh, if you think this was deep in the weeds, boy, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs>
2: Yeah, thank you guys for having me on. It's always a pleasure, and uh, I look forward to doing more of this stuff in the future. The other thing I'll say is that when you look at the problems that we discussed or the maybe the question marks or things that need work going into the fall for Oregon relative to the other teams in the conference, like or even in the division, like a Cal, and you read day's dive, it's like, you know what, our problems really aren't that bad. <laughs>
1: Yeah. yeah, it's a lot of so, like, boy, this could be, you know, this could go from an A- minus to an A+. plus. Boy, I, I, you know, I'm really steamed about how it's only an A- and then you look around the rest of the conference and you're like, oh my God. You know, like, you know, <laughs> one player got injured for Cal and their defense is probably done. Like, you know, Oregon's not in that situation. It's not even close to that situation. Also, it's like- I note
2: one more thing before I hop off because I got to get running here. Uh watching Kayvon Thibodeau rush the passer, the one thing that stuck out to me is he's starting to rush with one hand as opposed to two on his bull rush, which is going to be – it's going to essentially make him unblockable this year. It was the one thing last year where he was trying to establish this power and he was doing this two-handed chest thing. And uh, for those who are maybe – might be coaches or have history playing the defensive line that listen to the podcast, everyone knows that you're the longest and you're the most – Athletic when you have one hand on the on the on the offensive lineman as a pass rusher, and I saw it. I saw him dump George Moore into the lap of the quarterback. I saw him use it against Stephen Jones. It, it's gonna really, it's gonna take his game to the next level because it's gonna eliminate the amount of just dead pass rush reps that he kind of he had quite a few of them last year. It was a little bit of a developmental year for him where he's learning how to convert his speed to power as he grows into his frame, and now he's learning and I think applying the technical aspect of it which is going to be, I mean, it's like giving a a shark a fork and a knife to eat. So it's going to be really fun to watch him take that next step. I think this year is going to be probably the most dominant year of an Oregon pass rusher we've ever seen. Well,
3: it sounds like uh, we better start putting up the Heisman billboards then. (laughs) No, uh, thank you both. Uh, Love the insight. Love what you said about KT there at the end. And and HIP, we'll be sure to promote your stuff as usual because it's terrific and we love to support your work. So uh, thank you, gentlemen, once again. Take care, guys.
0: Yeah, Take thanks, guys. Care. So, two things. I I loved. Hith used a word that I I've never used in my daily parlance. I got to add this to the list. Elucidating, when he uh, he he said, "Hey, QB11 elucidated this." I commend the guy. I don't know how many people out there in sports media, and I count him in sports media with what he does at the Quack would use a word like elucidating. That was great. And then QB11 at the end, you chimed on this as well. He said, giving Kayvon Thibodeau that improved pass rush move where he's using one arm instead of two to uh, try to bull rush a left tackle and convert speed to power, it's like giving a shark a fork and a knife. That is a <laughs> statement.
3: That is a statement. No, and, you know, I think there's good... Can K. Thibodeau win the Heisman? And, and I, I was guessing we'd get into this eventually, so now's the right time. I, I think it's incredibly tough. There's no doubt. Uh, you know, obviously Chase Young was in the mix there uh, a little bit at Ohio State, but it's going to be incredibly tough. But I'll say this: it it tells me that the staff has a tremendous amount of of confidence in him, and that he's taken that next step. Um, you know, I don't I don't think 2020. The version of Cave on Thibodeau was even remotely what we were going to see in, in 2021, and that, and that's pretty pretty darn exciting. And I, I'm glad to hear maybe some of the reasons why. from QB, it's something so simple that most of us wouldn't pick up on it, almost was, would almost never pick up on it. But now that he's mentioned it, you'll watch games this fall and go, "Oh yeah, see what he's talking about." So, uh, and I love it. I mean, for recruiting purposes, it's absolutely freaking genius. You know, you're going to win football games with a with a pretty good defensive line. So why not push, you know, one of your most generational guys uh, to be a Heisman candidate? Shoot. I mean, who knows? Panay Swole might have been last year under normal conditions,
0: mm-hmm. uh, you know,
3: pushed as a Heisman contender. So uh, I, I think it's a really smart move by the uh, by the Oregon football staff to do that.
0: No doubt. Hey, w- you, you said this on the pod uh, when we interviewed those guys. And I know I said this as we got ready for the pod. Let's put a pin in the spring game stuff just because – We've got six more months to talk about it. (laughs) At least it feels like six more months. I know time's going to fly. September will be around the bend before we know it. But I I feel like we can hit a lot of that stuff in future episodes. I want to get your thoughts for like five more minutes on the NFL draft. Did you like where the draft-eligible Ducks landed, uh, is there any spot that you have circled as a, a particularly great one, or maybe the inverse, a particularly poor one?
3: Uh, you know, I mean, of course, you know, having Pinesa will go in the top 10 first-rounder. I mean, that's great. I mean, that, that that's a great thing for the program. Uh, you know, I know some people thought there's potential he could go four or five, you know, he I'm going to use the word "slid" to seven, but it's not much of a slide, right? I, uh, I think
0: he slid to seven because because I yeah, he, I thought the Falcons and the Bengals should have taken him four and five, but that's yeah, just a the five, Bengals, you know?
3: Yeah, the Bengals 100 percent should have taken him, and, and ultimately, you know, I, the well, I guess the Falcons should have too. I mean, I don't blame them for you know what they're trying to do there. It's clear that they're just you know wanting to outscore everybody, and that's fine. But I, I, you know, I I think he's going to help anybody he lands on. Uh, and I say that and I'm about to say, except for the Lions, I think they have so much work to do. It's yeah. going to be, yeah. uh, you know, I think it's going to be a rough couple of years for him unless he start making moves. Um, it's going to be a rough couple of years for him unless he ends up on, a, on, a, on another team after his rookie contract uh, is up. So uh, he's going to be a great player. I, I just hate to see. And I, I feel bad saying this, but I feel like his first couple of years are going to be wasted in Detroit. Uh, not that we that we won't all watch the one I really like. I really really like is uh, a. I think Javon Holland went to, in a spot in the draft where he was of value. I'm not going to call him a steal per se because we're talking early second round. Mm-hmm. Most people were looking like kind of you know twenty or so in the first round, so he's not way off of that. But I think there's a lot of value, and I think he goes to an absolutely terrific situation with the Dolphins. He's surrounded by some talent defensively they've got at least enough a little bit of enough of firepower on offense to take some pressure off the defense uh that's a team that's made some moves the last couple years and seems pretty serious about making that organization better um so i absolutely love love the pick of javon holland uh to the fins the uh the last one and maybe it's just because i'm I'm partial, but I do like Brady Breeze going to the Titans. I love to see that somebody picked him up uh, instead of an undrafted free agent. And the reason I say the Titans, I think when we think about Mike Frable, he's kind of that tough-nosed, hard-nosed, you know, are you a football guy kind of guy. And I, I think Brady Breeze is. He's always a, a kid that's worked really hard. We kind of brought his lunch pail to everything. Uh, I'm not anointing him a starter that is going to overtake the safeties there, but I think there's a a chance for him to play Mm -hmm. uh, and get some reps. But I think there's really a good chance for him to make a niche on the special teams. And and there's a lot of value for guys like that in the NFL. I mean, special teams are are kind of the, you know, the the hidden factor in the NFL. And I, I think he has the chance to. You know play there and play on special teams and contribute so I, I like that fit for him too
0: yeah i i said this on my show a million times over the years but I believe that where a player goes in terms of the fit, in terms of the team, is way more important than when they go. So like you see that analogy applied to the quarterbacks where I think Justin Fields and Trey Lance are going to get off to a better start than Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson just because their teams have a, a few more pieces in the war chest to work with. But as it applies to Oregon... Brady Breeze going to Nashville. This is a Southern Oregon kid, grew up in Medford, family in Ashland. I I think if you can't stay on the West Coast, like Justin Herbert did when he went to the Chargers last year, the next best thing is going to Nashville. I I just think culturally that's going to be a pretty easy transition for Brady, and then Javon Holland going to the Dolphins, you hit the nail on the head. Brian Flores is obsessed about winning, and nothing else matters. So he goes to an organization that's no-nonsense, focused on the right stuff from day one, and I think goes to a a team where they've done a really good job acquiring pieces. They've kind of taken the Belichick philosophy where – they don't need to sign these all-world, really versatile guys that can do everything. They understand that football is a sport where 53 guys battle 53 other guys, and they go out and get 53 unique pieces to fit together and platoon. So you'll have a, uh, a run front in your secondary. You'll have a uh, passing front in your secondary. You might have a three safety lineup in your secondary, a big nickel, so to speak, or, you know, all, all sorts of different personnel groupings on defense based on the coverages that you want to run and based on what the offenses are throwing at you. And I think Javon Holland fits really well in that kind of environment. Is he an all-around, all-world safety second coming of Ronnie Lott? I don't think so. But I think all of those cover three teams and and all the teams like Miami that want a lot of variety in their secondary for the various passing personnel groups they're going to see, Javon Holland is a dude they coveted. And so, yeah, I think that's a great fit for him.
3: Yeah. And that was one of the things I read is that, you know, obviously they like utilizing that Mika you know, Fitzpatrick role, kind of that nickel Rover kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that, I mean, that is a hundred percent Javon Hall. And that's a guy that you can bring down and not lose a ton in coverage. No, he's not a corner, but he's still a very capable cover guy. If you need to bring him up, uh, you know, or you can leave him back there and, and, and let him, you know, kind of protect against that home run ball. So, I mean, in terms of fit uh, and in terms of, uh, of, of, you know, the, uh, where he's going to slide into the, I, I think, I think he, uh, I, I think he really lucked out where he got picked and it makes a lot of sense.
0: And, and I'll leave this note on Panay. I'm actually higher on that lion's pick than others. I know a lot of duck fans have, have voiced the reservations that you have about how he's not going to win a lot these first couple of years, but I, I see a team with Dan Campbell that he, of course, he had that great sound bite when they hired him. How they want to bite people's kneecaps, um, but I, but I see a coach that sees an identity that he aspires his team to hold. He wants physical football. He wants that stereotypical smash mouth football, and he went out and got a quarterback. That do we think he's great? No, I think Jared Goff largely lived up to a bust in LA but he proved with the Rams that if you run the football and you feed him a lot of play action passes he's serviceable. I think the Lions are going to do that and pair that with a potential rising star in the backfield, DeAndre Swift, who who's returning, you know, the back they got from Georgia a couple years ago. And I think the Lions have a a really interesting launching point for Pene Sewell's career where they're going to run the ball on first down, and they're going to run the ball on second down, and they're going to run a lot on third down if it's third and short, and when they run, they are going to run on the left behind Pene Sewell. So I think he goes to a place where he can be a pro bowler from the first game of his first season, and even if they don't win a ton, you're not a team competing for a title, I think over the long haul, that's a home run pick, and, and it's, it's a great place for him to start his career because any doubts or concerns that teams might have about him at the next level, nobody doubts his ability to dominate on outside zone in the run game.
3: Well, yeah, and I don't think anybody... You know, I mean, anybody who's taking place will expect them to start contribute, and that, you know that's what you're expecting out of your top ten pick. And you know, heck, who knows? Maybe the Lions can win a few games and surprise us all,
0: and
3: maybe pick up a few duck bands along the way.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's the same thing that happened with. Uh, I I I guess I'm using a bad analogy here. I would say it's the same thing that happened with Marcus Mariota going to the Titans, but that that turned out pretty nasty. Um, you know, I, I, I guess if I have to think about it, I would say it's like Jonathan Stewart going to the Panthers. There I go. There, there's a better one. Cause they hadn't really won much before they drafted him.
3: Oh, see, I, there's an easiest, easy and obvious one to me. It's when Joey Harrington went to the Lions <laughs> oh. and, and destroyed his career. But, uh, yeah, he's, he's in the NFL. He'll be fine. He's a, he's a big offensive tackle and, and, uh, I'm sure he's going to have a terrific career.
0: Yeah. Let's hope he has a better start than Joey did, man. You know, I th- I could ramble about this for forever because you know me. I'm a big NFL guy. Harrington is one of my top NFL draft what-ifs in my lifetime. Yeah. I, I really feel like if he had been drafted either 10 years earlier or 10 years later, his career would have been totally different.
3: Oh, I agree. I agree. I think he had every. I think we had he had everything to to succeed in the NFL. It just uh, it just didn't line up for him. Yeah.
0: yeah. All right. Um, we're over an hour on the pod, and I I feel like we hit just about everything we could and everything we need to urgently. We can save a lot in the pod for next week. Uh, is there anything you want to talk about real quick before we wrap it? No,
3: no, I don't. I don't think so. I think you know, like I said, we want to get some spring ball ball coverage before it was too far away and uh and we did that and uh moving forward we can get some more guests on and and talk about you know baseball softball and and some of the other sports uh, a little bit more in depth moving forward
0: yeah top 25 baseball hey uh have a great week everybody congrats to all the ducks that got drafted and guys that are uh signing udfa undrafted contracts good luck to them at the next level And good luck to you this spring and this summer as we move one step closer to a normal world. Thanks for listening to the podcast, and go Ducks.